Welcome to the Sermon Podcast for First St. Charles United Methodist Church in downtown St. Charles, Missouri. We are so glad that you're here, and it's our prayer that you feel safe, welcome, and wanted in this space. If you're interested in finding out more about us or supporting our ministries, you can connect with us online at firststcharlesumc.org. Today's scripture comes from the book of Luke, chapter 14. Now large crowds were traveling with him, and he turned and said to them, Whoever comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, and even life itself, cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not carry the cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, intending to build a tower, does not first sit down and estimate the cost to see whether he has enough to complete it. Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it will begin to ridicule him, saying, This fellow began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, going out to wage war against another king, will not sit down first and consider whether he is able, with 10,000, to oppose the one who comes against him with 20,000? If he cannot, then while the other is still afar away, he sends a delegation and asks for the terms of peace. So therefore, none of you can become my disciple if you do not give up all your possessions. This is what the Spirit would have us know for the changing of our lives. Thanks be to God. Richard Rohrer is a Franciscan priest, a prolific author who has important things to say about spirituality. We must, he argues, cultivate a beginner's mind. A beginner's mind, he says, is a readiness to always be in awe, to always be excited. Beginner's mind, a beginner's mind is one's mind before the hurts of life have made us cautious and self-protective. We can still be excited. We can still be in awe. We can still expect tomorrow to be different than today. Have you cultivated a beginner's mind? Are you cultivating a beginner's mind? Because we as Christians give much emphasis to conversion. We're all about what it takes to have a beginner's mind and heart and soul. But, and this was a unique contribution of Methodism to the religious landscape, we don't stop there. We don't stop with a beginner's mind. We're called to cultivate what I would point to as a finish line mind. To live by and for the future by and for the God of the future, by and for the coming of the God who appears to us as the future made present. In the end is our beginning, wrote T.S. Eliot. Are you living by and for the God of the future and the future that God would have for us all? To that end, Jesus had some tough words to say. They were about the toughest words that you could imagine about 
counting the cost. Would any of you launch right in on a building project without first figuring out what money and materials you would need to finish it? Of course not. The homeowners association would howl. They'd say, you can't finish what you start. Or can you imagine a king so dumb that he sends 10,000 troops to fight off an enemy of 20,000 without a plan for how his smaller force can prevail? Of course not. If he sees he can't win, he saves face, he saves lives, he negotiates for peace. So with us all, Jesus is saying, with reference to our ultimate concern, with reference to God and our own souls, beware of beginnings that are doomed because they're naive and unprepared to do what it takes in the things that matter most. What it takes is to finish. Do you have a finish line mind? Are you cultivating a finish line mind and with heart and soul that would go with it? Perhaps Jesus knew that the thrill of beginnings can set us up for failure. Because starting is easy. We can easily be fooled into thinking that the thing itself always ought to be easy. So that when it gets really hard, we're shocked and dismayed and maybe even give up. You know how true this is of relationships in our culture, especially the romantic kind. So many people are in love with falling in love, addicted to the chase. But once the real ongoing demands and obligations of actual relationships start piling up, the thrill is gone and bye-bye, love. Many a worthwhile pursuit is abandoned or otherwise weakened because our pleasure in the starting of it was unprepared for the rigors in the living of it. It happens in romance and in friendships, in the classroom, and in your life's work. And it happens all the time with reference to faith. Jesus knew this well. He knew the seduction of an easy beginning. And it's a measure, I believe, of his kindness. That more than once when he saw people showing up to start some kind of new life with him, he let out a stern warning. Don't you dare start this, he said, unless you mean to keep at it for the duration. Think about what you're doing here. Carefully consider what the cost will be. Do some serious reflections on what will be required of you to put my name and my way on your life. If you won't do what it takes, you can't come with me. You can't. You can't. You can't. 
seems pretty clear to me that Jesus wasn't in the business of leading a church. If he was, I guarantee you, he'd be doing what I'm always doing, encouraging people to join, making it easy for them to join, and celebrating big time when they do. Instead, he seems to be warning us away, or at least setting it up so he could say, I told you so. He made a speech one day when, sure enough, the big crowds were flocking to him. At the moment, he's a star. He's charismatic. He's witty. He tells great stories. He makes sick people well, makes sad people laugh again, gives you hope, gives you the thrilling sense that you're in the presence of God. They all want to be with him. That's when he drops the truth bomb. It's some of the harshest words he ever spoke. You can't be my disciple. You can't be. You can't be my disciple. He says it three times, each time attached to the word unless. The first one blows us away. You can't be my disciple unless you hate your parents, your spouse, your children, your siblings, even life itself. Hate? Jesus, the very enfleshment of love, says hate your children, your partner, your parents. Hate life too? He doesn't exactly mean hate as we mean it. He's using a Semitic hyperbole familiar to his hearers. Hate, in his usage, has nothing to do with anger or ill will. It means loving something less ultimately than you love something else. It means a certain detachment from who and what you love because of a greater attachment that precedes and outweighs all else. It means a basic ability to put the present on hold for the greater future that he brings. You can't be my disciple, he says, if any of these attachments is absolute. Now, that sounds more palatable than hating our loved ones. But in all honesty, it hardly puts us at ease. He's warning us off, drawing our identity from them. He's calling us to loosen our grip on them, to loosen, if need be, their grip on us. One way or another, we cannot keep our attachments and they cannot keep us. This business of loosening our grip may not come easy. Anne Lamott says that everything that she had to let go of had her fingernail marks on it. Who wants to detach from what tells you who you are? To step back from someone or something you wouldn't want to live without. 
life itself we cannot keep. Unless we live like this is so, unless we uncurl our anxious fingers from them all, we cannot love, not really, and we won't have what it takes to be a disciple of Jesus. Jesus says the same thing about possessions. You can't be my disciple if you don't give up all your possessions. I don't think he means that possessions in and of themselves are bad. My guess is he means that you and I are incapable of possessing without somehow being possessed. If we can't let go of it in a heartbeat, it's got us. You can't be my disciple, he says, if your stuff has got you. And no one, he says, in a kind of summary, can be my disciple who does not carry the cross and follow me. What in the world does that mean? I don't fully know how to say it. I am not worthy to attempt to say, but it points at least to all that we are and the, all that we had hoped to be given to God with the willing submission to suffer for love's sake as love calls forth suffering, to die for love's sake as love requires dying. Are you sure you want to be my disciple, he asked. And it's kindness. I'll say it again. It's his burning, brilliant kindness that sets him to saying such things. He knows we are dazzled by the prospect of boundless love, the truest desire of the world, the deepest and loving, lovingest longing of our hearts. He knows how utter our need for it. And He won't have us reaching for it in vain. It will take this, He says, all that you have, all that you love, all that you are. So infinite is God's gift to us. There is no response that is adequate or even meaningful apart from emptying for it fully and opening to it fully. That is all. Think about that, says Christ. Because I want what you start with me and what I start with you to come to completion. I want that what you start with me and what I start with you to come to completion. I want you to have a finish line mind and the heart and the soul that go with it. This all brings me to a very practical suggestion for our spiritual lives. Today we continue our series, Keeping the Change. It's a play on words. We're talking about how we keep the change what was once begun in Christ, that it may come to continue to completion. To that end, as we consider the cost of being a disciple, 
May I suggest our budgets as a basic spiritual tool? You may not have thought of them that way. They are. Even a casual acquaintance with Christian faith may know that cultivating our spiritual lives means taking much and making much of prayer and regular worship and acts of charity and justice. These, as we all know, are spiritual disciplines. What many don't realize is the importance of a budget as a basic spiritual tool. Do you have a budget? Most of us have a budget for the purpose of making sure that we have enough to pay bills, to keep the electric turned on, the AC working, and our food on the table. If we haven't written it out, at least we have it in our heads. But maybe we do actually write it down. And in addition to paying bills, we have money budgeted for emergencies or savings or vacation now and then or for the once, the new boat or bike or the place at the lake. Do you have a budget written down? Where in all those priorities is your budget to commit to generosity? I believe everybody wants to be generous. Where in your budget is your generosity? Here's the practical challenge. Write out your budget. Figure out where your commitments to God would be and move them higher. Move them up from the basement to where you live. Move them up from close to last to the point where it has your attention. Move God up until that point where, as I pointed to earlier, you can let everything else go in a heartbeat because it doesn't have you. And because our daily, weekly, monthly, yearly budgets aren't the only way we live by and for the future of God, let me ask, where is God's will in your will? This is something I've been pondering more and more as I reach the possibly final third or fourth of my life. I know I want to leave my kids something in my will. I absolutely am sure that I want to make sure that if Beth outlives me, she's cared for. I'm also pondering how I might witness with what I leave that none of what I've accumulated has a hold on me. I'm wondering how I might budget for a future that says I've cultivated a finish line mind. How might I budget for a future beyond me? You don't have to answer that question for me. You do have to answer for yourselves. We all have to give answer to the love of Christ that has already paid all costs.